With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the God be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, a man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, so sorry, so sorry. Thanks, Caroline. Well, who is ready for the best sermon ever? Right here. It's about to happen. Um, oh, my. I should just close in prayer right now and just cut my losses. Um, what we've been doing, if you've been around the world of uh, Redeemer recently, this fall we have been asking this question, who do we want to be as a church? And we're returning to our core values and our, our overarching mission and vision, and we, we're going to finish that next week. We've got a few more weeks of doing this, a few more cracks at talking about who we want to be as a church. And um, one of the things, if you've been around the world of Redeemer, one of the things that's kind of been baked into the way that we talk is that we, we say that we want to be a church not just for ourselves, Maybe you've heard Redeemerites use that language. We want to be a church not just for ourselves, which is to say um, we don't want to just put on services on Sunday mornings where people can come and listen to amazing music and hear some teaching or whatever and get a little inspiration. We want to be a part of something. We want to do something in the city. We want to make an impact in the place where God has put us. And um, so we're going to look at what it means for the church to be a, for us to be a just church, what it means for us to do justice. This is the language that you see in verse 8 in the, in the passage that was just read. And of course, justice is a very hot topic in our current moment. It's not like this is a new topic. Conversations around justice are, are um, you know, I've been around a long time. I do feel like in, in recent years that this subject has kind of hit a fever pitch in terms of it's just kind of loud and it's controversial and it's everywhere. But even though it's a big deal in our culture, you might be surprised to know that it's also a pretty big deal in the Bible. The Hebrew word for justice is the word mishpat. It shows up 200 times in the Hebrew scriptures. There are, there are 2,000 verses in the Bible as a whole that have to do with justice, that have to do with wealth, that have to do with poverty. In fact, the Bible talks more about justice than it does about heaven, than it does about sex, than it does about prayer, all three combined. So there's a lot to say. And, you can, and I really struggle with what do you even say in one sermon because there's 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 so much to say, to quote Dave Matthews for some of my, my Dave Matthews lovers. There's so much to say. Um, so what do you say? I mean, this, this subject really does deserve its own sermon series, and we're not going to, maybe one day we'll do that. We're not going to do that right now. We'd be here for hours. So if we want to be a church not just for ourselves, if the Bible gives this much airtime to this subject, we should probably wrap our heads around it. So let's look at three things this morning from this little passage. I want to look at the nature of justice, the demand of justice, and the paradox of justice. Nature, demand, paradox. So first, the nature of justice. What 
what do we mean by that word? I mean, you see it there in verse 6. I'll read it again. He has told you, O man, which is referring to mankind, humanity. He has told you, humanity, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, let's zoom in on that. What does that phrase mean to do justice. When most Western American people hear that word, we immediately jump into like the legal sphere. We think about like a courtroom. And justice is when, you know, a punishment or somebody is acquitted. When the right thing has happened, you say justice is served. And so you think about it in a court context, but the, the Hebrew mind didn't think about justice primarily as a legal concept. It was much bigger. It was a lot more positive concept. It involved legal stuff, but it also involved, uh, it, it was a personal reality. There's, there's social and relational and even global dimensions to what this word justice really means. And there's, again, there's so much that we can say, which by the way, just for the record, to cite my sources, I'm leaning heavily on the work of Tim Keller, the work of Jeremy Treat, um, as I'm kind of fleshing this out. But let me just draw out two aspects of justice when the Bible talks about this concept. Two aspects. Here's the first aspect. The Bible has in mind equity. Equity. If you look at um, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 22, this is your favorite book of the Bible and mine. Um, this verse reads this. You are to have the same law, which is that Hebrew word mishpat, justice. You're to have the same law for the foreigner as for the native born. Meaning, people should be treated fairly without any reference to their nationality, without any reference to their race, really without any reference to anything about them. That's what fairness is, is you give somebody what they deserve without reference to their gender or their income level or their, their, uh, their sexual orientation or whatever. It's just you, you give people what you, they deserve. That's equity. That's fairness. So, for example, if you have two people guilty of the same crime and they deserve the same punishment, but somebody gets a lesser sentence because of their income level or because of their race... That's not just. That's not fair. That's, that's inequitable. If, if two people work for the same employer, they do the same thing, they have the same skill set, they, they deserve the same pay, but somebody gets paid less because they happen to be a woman, that's not just. That's, that's, that's not equitable. This is, this is, in some ways, what the Bible talks about when it, when it talks about the sin of partiality, when you privilege somebody over against somebody else for whatever reason. This is what it's talking about. Now, when you and I, as Americans, hear that, that justice is equity, fairness, we say, yeah, that's great. I'm into that. Thumbs up. I'm for it. I'm here for the equity. So let's look at the second aspect because things get a little bit more challenging when you think about how the Bible starts to round this out because justice is not just equity, but it's also advocacy. Not just equity, but advocacy, meaning that even though we're not to show partiality, we are to show special concern and special treatment for those without resources, for the vulnerable, for those who don't have power. And so you see this tension. There's, it's, there's equal treatment, but also special treatment. And you hear that and you say, well, that sounds like a contradiction. How can, they be, how can you have both? In fact, I had a conversation with somebody on my porch, um, I guess it was a number of months ago, and he, we were talking about these issues, and he was communicating to me. He had just applied for a job that he didn't get, because, and they gave 
the job that he was applying for to someone who was black. And he told me they, they, gave, they gave them the job just because this person was black. Now, I don't know if that's true. Who knows? But that was his interpretation of this event, was they privileged a person of color. And he was saying, well, that's reverse racism. If you privilege anybody, that's not fair. That's unequitable. If you, if you prioritize the needs of any one person over somebody else, that's not justice. That's not fair, right? It's not equity. And maybe you can hear where he's coming from. I mean, I know these are crazy, complicated dynamics. But I also want you to listen to the impulse of the Bible here. here here's a verse from Proverbs 31, verse 8. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. The Bible doesn't say defend the rights of the rich. It's not because the rich don't matter. It's not because the rich aren't important. They just don't need you to defend them. So here you have an example in the Bible that doesn't call for equal treatment, but calls for special treatment of somebody in particular need. Let's just use my family as, a, as kind of a crude analogy for what I'm talking about. I've got two children. Let's say we all sit down as a family for dinner. And our daughter, Zoe Kate, let's say she had spent the afternoon at a birthday party and she had cake and ice cream. So she's coming into dinner pretty full, pretty stuffed. And Reed, our son, because he's Reed, he forgot to eat lunch and forgot to eat breakfast, and so he's coming in to dinner pretty hungry. And I set down before them two slices of pizza each. And Zoe Kate barely touches it. Reed inhales it and wants seconds immediately. Now, what if I looked at him and said, sorry, I can't give you more because that wouldn't be fair. Now, you could read that and hear that analogy, and again, all analogies kind of break down, but you, you could see that and say, okay, that's fair, sure, but is that just? Is that right? This is why when the Bible talks about special concern for the poor, for the vulnerable, when it uses this language of justice, it tends to explicitly mention the poor and the downcast. In fact, I'll give you an example. Again, there's 2,000 verses. I'm not going to read you 2,000, but I'll read you four. Here's Psalm 82, verse 3. Give justice to who? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Here's Psalm 146, verse 7. It says this talking about God, he executes justice for the oppressed who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners, meaning immigrants or refugees. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Here's another one, number three. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to who? To the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. In fact, for this last verse, you see both of these aspects brought together, equity and advocacy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe, equity. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now, that's 
again, 30,000 foot view, but that's the nature of justice. It's equal treatment and yet special treatment for those who are powerless. It's equity and advocacy. So what it means to do justice is living in this tension of defending the rights of the poor, speaking for those who can't speak for themselves, caring for the tangible needs of people who are in need. It's, it's moving into the parts of society that are unraveling, where people are falling through the cracks, and you're engaging and trying to lift people up. That's what it means to do justice. Now, you hear all of that and you think, okay, well, that's, I don't know what I think about all of that, but that's, um, it's a nice idea. It's nice to want to care for people in need. I like that idea. I'm glad that there are some people out there that care about that and do that. And so let's turn up the intensity level just a little bit with the second point, And I want you to see the demand for justice, the demand of it. We're really only looking at three verses in this book, but it's a big book. And if you, I mean, if you zoom out of the book of um, Micah, what's going on in the bigger context is God is coming to his people, to the people of Israel, and, and he's, he's leveling accusations against them because they're very religious. They go to temple and they, they sacrifice and, and they, they read the Bible and they pray, but they are exploiting their workers they're privileging the rich. They're neglecting the poor. And so God says, I am, I am coming to judge you over this. And so in verse 6 of the passage, you can see at the very top, here's their response to this judgment from God that's coming to them. They say, okay, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? I mean, they're saying, hey, should we offer him sacrifices? That's what we've already been doing. I don't see what the problem is here. Why, why is he getting on our case? Why is he judging us? We've been doing the, the burnt offering thing. In fact, they start to get a little snarky in the next verse, um, what my parents would call a little smart aleck when I was younger. This is, listen how sassy they get in verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? They're, they're being sarcastic. They're saying, God, God, you are so high maintenance. You, okay, you want us to sacrifice stuff. Okay, if one ram isn't enough for you, how about a 1,000? Will that be enough to get you off of our backs? Um, do you want us to sacrifice our own children, our firstborn son? Would that be enough to kind of make you happy? I don't see what the deal is. And here's Micah's response, verse 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, this is not new information. He has already told you. Remember? 2,000 verses about this. But here's what he's saying. If you, have, if you have external faith, if you are outwardly religious, and yet you neglect caring for the poor, you have a faith that is dead. And you have a faith that is worthy of judgment, according to the book of Micah. In fact, I include this little book, this um, quote at the beginning of your bulletin. Here's how Roger Greenway puts it. He puts a little bit of a finer point on it. He says, if we proclaim the gospel but ignore poverty, 
then I think on the basis of the word of God, we have to be labeled false prophets. I mean, that's pretty intense. You see what Roger Greenway is saying. You see what Mike is saying. You see what the Bible as a whole is saying. There's this demand for justice. What does the Lord require of you? That's the language, which is so different from how modern people like me and and most Americans think because we think charity is a good thing. I'm for charity, but charity by definition is optional. That's what makes it charity. If, If I, you know, I have money, I've worked hard for what I have, and if out of the goodness of my own heart, if I want to give some of it to some, help somebody in need, that's great. That's charity. But the, you, if you demand that of me, if you require that, it's no longer, it's no longer charity. It's my, it's my choice. It's kind of like whenever you buy a cup of coffee or really anything now, and, and as you're finalizing the transaction, they spin the iPad towards you, and you have the option for the tip. And you can say, well, I don't think that required a tip. No tip. Or if you're feeling particularly generous that day, feeling like you're in a good mood, 25% tip for pouring that coffee for me. You know, you feel like, okay, I have the choice. I have the option. This is not how the Bible thinks, though. Again, if I had more time, I would try to tease this out. But what the Bible seems to imply that other people, particularly the poor, actually have rights to our resources, that your stuff isn't just your stuff. It also belongs to the community that you live in. This is why when the Bible uses, when the Bible talks about caring for the poor, it doesn't, it doesn't say neglecting the poor is a lack of charity. It says it's a lack of justice. It's not that we're just being stingy. It's we're being unjust. That's a totally different way of thinking about this. So what does that mean? If we, if we lean into this, if we buy into this and say, okay, this is, this is a big deal in the Bible. What does this mean for us to do justice? What do I do? There's a million things to do. What do I do? I'll give you a few ideas. Um, this Saturday, we have a Binghampton Garden Community Project that we, we are, we're going as a church to go do this. And so if you're thinking, okay, what can I do about doing justice? This week, you can directly apply this passage into your life and go and help clear land or build bridges and do whatever needs to be done in this, in this neighborhood that needs it. Um, one of the reasons why we offer all of these, we, we, we highlight all of these monthly partners and sponsors is to give you tangible footholds of ways to hook into groups and organizations in our city that are doing justice work. There's easy, obvious way. I mean, even just this morning talking about new ballet. Um, one of our good friends and our members, Austin Dalgo, every Monday night he helps out with this free clinic in Oak Haven, which is a neighborhood right by the uh, airport. It's a lower income neighborhood, and they need it's a free clinic for people in that community, and they need all kinds of different help and volunteers. They have uh, they use counselors. So if you're a counselor, if your your training is in counseling, you can go and and use your gifts and use your craft to help out uh, a vulnerable community. They need uh, people with legal work, they need social workers, they offer cooking classes, exercise classes, uh, they'll take medical professionals, people training to do you know, medical stuff. They'll even take people like me who don't know how to do anything and they just need people to sign people in to help them into the clinic. So there's lots of ways to get involved in doing justice stuff right here in our backyard, which is great, it's super, 
it can be overwhelming, but the good news of that is there's a lot of ways to do this, which is convenient because the Bible looks at you and me, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, and, say, and says to you and me, this is not optional. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice? Now, you hear all of that? The nature of justice, the demand for justice, and you think, okay, how, I don't, how do I do that? That does not feel like I, I have the <laughs> generosity of spirit or the time or the ability to even know what, how to engage in this. Well, let's look at this last thing, the paradox of justice, because we've, we've really been only talking about this one phrase, but there are three phrases in verse 8. If you look at the whole list, he requires us to do justice and to love kindness, which is some translations might say love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, you look at those three. Doing justice, if we're honest, it kind of sounds liberal. It sounds um, social. It sounds very public. Walking humbly with your God sounds very conservative, very um, individualistic, very private. Loving kindness, it doesn't even sound American. I mean, we're, we're you know, we, we're like, I don't even know, what is kindness even anymore in our culture right now? And so you, you're like, how in the world do you get somebody that does all three? How do you get all three of these things to show up in somebody's life? Well, most people say, well, the way that you do it is you guilt them. You get them into church and put a big guilt trip on them and send them out the door and go get them to do some stuff. You know, I remember when I was a kid, if, if maybe you remember this from the, I don't know, 80s or 90s, they would play these commercials of starving kids in Africa, just these horrible, like terribly depressing images of these really skinny, hungry kids with like flies on their face. You remember this? They were trying to raise money to stop hunger in Africa. And you, you'd see these images with this you know, sad music in the background and you're like, oh my gosh, I feel so guilty. I just came from CeCe's all-you-can-eat buffet and I feel so guilty for having resources. And so guilt might motivate you to give money. It might motivate you to get involved in doing justice stuff. But you know what guilt doesn't do? It doesn't generate loving kindness. Guilt can't produce love. Guilt just produces an instinct to want to get the pressure off of your conscience. And when the pressure is off of your conscience, you feel better about yourself. But it doesn't, it doesn't create loving kindness. So what the real motivator in our day and age looks like is not guilt, but it's pride. Pressing on people's pride. If you want to be the right kind of person, you want to be on the right side of history, if you want to be really progressive, if you really want to be woke, if you really want to care, then you will care about race, you'll care about justice stuff, you'll get involved in these things. If you want to be the right kind of person and you hear that and you see these messages and you're like, gosh, I don't want to, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I'm going to go get involved. I'll go do some stuff. Pressing on your pride might motivate you to do justice, but it will not help you walk humbly with your God. Because your whole motivation is through pride and virtue signaling, and you'll just become a different kind of oppressor. You'll just oppress a different kind of person if that's your motive. So how do you get all three? How do you get somebody that does justice and loves kindness and walks humbly? How do you get the hat trick of um, Micah 6.8? Well, here's what's fascinating. The people of Israel knew intuitively someone had to pay for my transgressions. 
they, they thought God's demands were unrealistic. They were a little over the top, but they at least knew somebody has to pay for this. This is why in verse 7, they say, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? They're saying somebody has to bear the weight of my sin, of my violation of justice. And that's right. If you were to take a baseball bat and smash my car window, somebody would have to pay for that. Either you're going to pay for it and buy me a new window. It's very rude of you to do that, by the way. Or I pay for it. But somebody pays for it. They knew somebody has to pay for it. And here's what's crazy. God does not make us pay for it. Here's a verse, Psalm 103, verse 1. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not make you pay for your transgression, which raises the question, then who pays for it? And the answer is, he does. He doesn't make you offer your son to pay for your transgression. He offers his son to pay for your transgression. And Jesus comes and he is offered as the sacrifice. He bears the weight of all of our injustice, all of our lack of charity, all of our pride, everything in us. He bears the weight of us and of our sin and of our injustice. Here's what's crazy. God does not motivate you by guilt to do justice. He doesn't press on your pride to do justice. He gives you grace for your failure to do justice. Now, when that starts to get into your bloodstream, if that goes all the way down into your heart, I think that does three things. The first thing it does is it humbles you. If you realize, okay, I'm saved by grace, that means there's nothing about me that put, gave me a leg up over anybody else. It's not because I'm better, not because I'm smarter, not because I'm more moral, not because I'm more sensitive to social issues. I'm saved by grace, which humbles you. It levels the playing field. It strips anything in you that makes you think you're better than somebody else. And the second thing it does is it begins to activate your heart, where you begin to actually love. You start to love kindness. In fact, you start to embody kindness. Because the operating system of your heart isn't fear, pride, guilt. It's gratitude. It's wonder. It's worship. And the last thing it does is it starts to sync up your heart with God's heart. You begin to love what God loves. And what does God love? Isaiah 61 verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice you begin to start to have a special concern for the powerless, for the impoverished, and for the vulnerable because you know when you're looking at them, you're really in some ways only, you're looking at a mirror. And your, love, your life always follows what you love. You will begin to be a person who does justice, who walks humbly with your God, who loves kindness. Here's the paradox of all of this. Only grace can generate justice like this. Only grace generates a fully-orbed, humble, loving, heart-activated approach to caring for the needs of our city. Final thought, and then I'm done. Um, I know that these issues are very complicated, 
and complex and challenging. In fact, if you've ever read um, When Helping Hurts, if you've ever read anything by Robert Lupton, you know that there's a way to care for the poor that actually perpetuates economic disparity. Um, for a lot of us, myself included, we have to fight against this white savior complex that if we engage justice with this kind of white savior mentality, then it can perpetuate weird, icky power dynamics. And then you have all of the in-house theological questions of like, oh my goodness, this just sounds like Marxism. This just sounds like, uh, this is just social gospel stuff. This is all crazy, complicated, challenging, confusing, and I don't claim to have all of the answers. Um, it reminds me of when our children come to me or my wife and they want me to untie their shoes because they didn't untie them when they took them off. And so it's just this big tangled knot in their shoe and I, and, I, and I take this thing and I'm trying to untangle it and it's this crazy, complicated knot. I'm like, I don't even know how that was physically possible for you to create this. This is like an M.C. Escher drawing. It's, it's like physics don't make sense anymore with this. And I could kind of mess with this and realize I, this is way too confusing and I could set the shoe down and say, sorry, buddy, you are going barefoot today because I, I don't know how to do it. Or... I could look at my child and out of love for them and because I have a responsibility to them, I could say, I'm going to sit down and I will try to figure this out. It's going to hurt my fingernails and it's going to drive me crazy. It's going to take me time, but I'm going to figure out how to undo this knot so you can have shoes on. Point being, these issues are so complicated. They're so crazy. They're so complex. They're, they're so challenging. We can look at the knot of this issue and say, I don't know. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to make sense of it theologically. I don't know how to do it in a way that really helps, so I'm just not going to do it. Or you can say, well, out of love for my neighbor and out of a responsibility for my neighbor, I'm going to try to figure out how to undo this knot, if there's even a way to undo it. And so who do we want to be as a church? We want to be a church that leans into trying to figure out how to untangle the knot. We want to be a church that does justice. We want to be a church that loves kindness. We want to be a church that walks humbly with our God, not because we're awesome, but because we have a God who out of complete grace chose to humble himself for us so that he might walk with us. That's why. Because grace has so transformed us into the kind of people who want to do justice. That's who we want to be. We want you to be that with us. Let me pray. Father, um, I know that these issues are controversial and challenging and hard, and I pray that we would not leave this time feeling good about ourselves, that we are engaged in justice work. We would not feel guilt and shame about ourselves because we're not, or we don't feel like we're doing it enough, but that we would collapse into the arms of our Savior Jesus who loves failures like me, who loves stingy, uncharitable, unjust people like me, and so transform us, so undo us by your grace and your love that we would be the kind of people who begin to do what you require. Help us by your spirit and by your grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name.